you always believe? Did I always believe? I am I don't know how not to believe. I don't think I know how to. I think maybe I... I don't really believe. I really believe any of this. Maybe everything that's happened so far is it's just some kind of vivid dream. I don't know if I can believe that. Even if you don't believe, you cannot travel any other way than a road. Your senses show you. And you must walk that road to the end. Hello and welcome to Storm of Spoilers. You stumbled upon an eight-episode miniseries dedicated to the Stars TV adaptation of American Gods. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Gail Folsom. Each week, we, two book readers and amateur Neil Gaiman experts, will unpack the latest episode of American Gods. Despite the name of this podcast, we will not be spoiling anything in this episode beyond Season 1, Episode 8, Come to Jesus, Directed by Floria Sigismondi, written by Brian Fuller, Michael Green. This is our last episode of the series. We're very sad about that. Uh, but before we dive into the episode itself, the the season one finale, uh, let's check in on some listener feedback. Gail, what do we have this week? Okay, we start off with an email from Gustavo, who says. <sighs> As Mexican-American that grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border and whose grandmother never missed an opportunity to teach her grandkids about how the U.S. stole half of Mexico, this is how my nitpick comes to the shore of American gods. Mexican Jesus showed up in Season 1, Episode 6, in what would appear to be relatively modern day. Also, in Episode 3, Mr. Wednesday talks about how Mexican Jesus came to America illegally, quote, his back as wet as the epithet suggests. The whole time I'm distracted because any border state along the Rio Grande, Texas to California, was Mexico before it was the United States. Wouldn't Mexican Jesus already have been here since the 1800s? Also, talk about a missed opportunity for another female deity for the book slash show in the Virgin of Guadalupe, in my opinion. Then I thought, don't be silly. Maybe this Jesus in episode six is Guatemalan Jesus or El Salvadorian Jesus, because certainly there are all sorts of immigrants arriving that might be bringing their own incarnation of Jesus across the Rio Grande. Then IMDb flat out called the actor Ernesto Reyes Mexican Jesus. I have nothing more to add other than just Audrey style uh, Jeremy Ed about Mexican Jesus. Uh, full points for the word <laughs> Jeremiah. Um, the I thought this was really interesting and, and like really really good to talk about in the context of this episode, which features so many Jesuses, uh, including <laughs> so very many Mexican Jesus. Jesus. He lives. We had another email or tweet. Uh, someone was like, "If Mexican Jesus dies in episode six, 
that can't be it. Like Mexican Jesus is <laughs> dead, right? And like we saw Mexican Jesus very briefly in this episode walk past Laura. So he is risen. Mexican Jesus. I wonder if they they rise every Easter Sunday. Who knows? Anyway, wait, yeah, Jesus. if they like die the like the Monday after, do they have to wait a whole year? Ugh. It suck. <laughs> the worst. Um, I, I think Gustavo brings up a really good point. I think that's a little bit of a sloppy uh, mm-hmm. characterization of Mexican Jesus. Um, and sloppy, I guess, is the most generous way to say it. I, you know, if someone's insulted by that, I wouldn't blame them. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on this? Perspective? I, I mean, the, it's absolutely correct. And I'm. If you look at, I mean. We, we talked in an earlier episode about uh, the California California mission projects. Like it's pretty clear that G- Jesus, Mexican Jesus, Mexican or otherwise, Spanish Jesus has at least has been in California and Texas for a really long time, longer than the U.S. has been a country. So, yeah, it's it's sloppy, but it's also I mean a lot. Of, I I I'm I excuse it a little bit by the fact that a lot of the gods that we're looking at, uh, whether they are modern gods or iterations of old gods are so affected by kind of a a public perception, if you will. So, you know, maybe the fact that, um, that the, uh, the territories no longer belong to Spain, or Mexico as such means that the those original iterations of Jesus didn't resurrect. They didn't, you know, reset at uh, at Easter Sunday or whatever the rule is about that. And instead, they've been replaced by, um, you know, immigrant Jesuses coming in with groups of people who are who are bringing their versions of Jesus from their homeland. Yeah, I think it like I I almost want to call that Jesus that we see in episode six like. Mexican immigration Jesus. You know, like there's, there <laughs> certainly is a version of Jesus. Like, I almost want to say there should be, I mean, I keep making the joke personal Jesus, but there should be a Jesus for like every single person because as Wednesday says in this episode, like everyone sees a different face when they think of Jesus. Even people who like, even probably people in the same family who are raised in the same church, mm-hmm. exposed to the same iconography, you still see someone slightly different when you close your eyes and you think of Jesus. And so I, I think in my ideal world, there would be a Jesus for every single every single person who believed in Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, my Jesus looks like Willem Dafoe. Mine looks like George Harrison, which is really convenient because he showed up in this episode. But um, <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> The um, so like that there would be like a Mexican Jesus that is associated with with like people generations of families that have lived in the California te- you know Texas territories mm-hmm. for you know years and years and years and that there would also be a Jesus that would come into America with Mexicans like Gustavo's so right that an easy way to solve that would be to have Guatemalan Jesus or El Salvadorian Jesus or something like that but um you know I'm guessing for you know, crass simplicity's sake or whatever, it just makes more sense to have a Mexican. Kind of like how what Americans think of as Mexican food is frequently nothing like Mexican food. Is like at best Tex-Mex. <laughs> yeah, well, like, I mean, especially, and it totally and utterly fails to take into account that Mexico is, you know, a pretty big place. And there are probably regional discrepancies in cuisine, you know, depending on if you're on a coast or a mountain. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's like, um, you know, American food. Probably a lot of Mexican Jesus. Like, like when, when you, yeah, no, of course there are a lot of Mexican Jesus. Of course there's like mountain range Mexican Jesus and like coast, coastal Mexican, like Oaxacan Jesus and like all that sort of stuff like that. Jalisco um, Jesus. Yeah. Um, the, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just to follow your metaphor to its final resting place. Uh, it's like when, when the rest of the world thinks of American food. I think they think burgers and fries, right? They think McDonald's (laughs) and that's like, that's just not right. That's wrong. Let's talk about beignets. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about pecans. I don't know. All right. Uh, what, let's get, what's our next, our next email. Our next email here is from a bona fide Irish person who answered the call and has left us a pronunciation of their name, which I, I think even in the pronunciation, I'm sort of going to butcher it. Um, I'm seeing Morkeen O Mulan. Mulan? Yeah. Mulan. Morkeen O Morkeen. 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 Oh, dear. I'm so sorry. <laughs> This is so a great sorry. email. Thank you this for letting a, us like yeah, take a crack. This at your was name. a great email, and it was um, it was very detailed. It had a lot of really interesting information about different parts of of Ireland and um, this this person's family history. It eventually came to about four bullet points of information relating to questions that we had directly asked or comments that we had solicited in the last episode. So number one. The answer to the question everyone's been asking, the curse to the sky by Mad Sweeney. When Matt, and this is when Mad Sweeney is standing in the street and, and cursing and yelling because he's being called upon to sort of do the right thing by his own uh, supernatural conscious as conscience as Laura lies in the street with the coin out and, and her, you know, her guts everywhere. Her innards have become <laughs> outwards. <laughs> so he, he, she, this person says... The Curse to the Sky by Mad Sweeney. As I was explaining to my girlfriend, Mad Sweeney is not speaking in modern Irish. He may be using Old or Middle Irish. He used the subtitles to translate. He seems to say, quote, Believe this shit would happen to me, or why does this shit happen to me? Isn't that enough excessive suffering? It's enough already. I'm not evil. I'm not. My shoddy translation of Old Irish seems to be supported by this Irish online media source, and there is a link... Beware of their negative feelings toward the portrayal of Irish people in this episode. We'll tweet that link out to you guys later if you want if you want to see it. Number two, Emily's accent is just as bad as Pablo's to an Irish ear, I'm afraid. Neither resemble any Irish accent that exists in reality, of which there are countless, seriously, but their effort is valiant. I want to say that um, one of my favorite descriptors of a bad Irish accent from an Irish person um, I, I heard last year around this time when Preacher season one started and the British actor Joseph Gilgan was cast as the Irish uh, vampire Cassidy and an <laughs> Irish person tweeted at me that his accent sounded a little too diddly eye potatoes. And so <laughs> that's what I think of every time someone's like, that's a terrible Irish accent. I was like, Oh, it's a little too diddly eye potatoes, which I guess is what Emily was doing. Um, and we should say that, that, um, Morsheen or Morsheen or, um, was so kind to not even mention the shitty accents that Gail and I were doing. So like, actually, I think that, oh. I think they do mention oh. it in their final comment here. 
Um, <laughs> so nicely, though, oh. that I think you missed it. Because I nearly did. I thought I re- they were talking about the episode, but I, I see now. The episode, but I think they're talking about it's about that. me. Okay. <laughs> so well, I don't know. I don't know. I liked. I live in hope. There's yeah. There's room. For- I, I'm, okay. I'm going to read this and then yeah. and we'll dissect it and 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 worry about ourselves. I was a bit surprised. This is this is our reader. Uh, or excuse me, our listener again. I was a bit surprised by your support of quote freckleface. And the massacre of Irish accents, Joanna, considering your usual sensitivity toward cultural misrepresentation and or appropriation in your podcasts. I can imagine you and Dave Chen chastising other commentators or producers or productions for similar portrayals of other cultures slash countries slash ethnic groups, double standards, perhaps. I'm sure most Irish people will take it in jest like myself. I like that. um, I like I like that you were called out, but I was just like, you know, whatever she wants to do. Well, yeah, they haven't heard you get up on your soapbox a bunch of times about <laughs> cultural appropriation, but they have heard me do that. Um, I had a lot of thoughts about this, though. Okay. Actually. Um, I just want to say really quickly, like, uh, the, uh, this person's absolutely right in that, well, Dave and I actually had a very a discussion about this very topic over on the now defunct Gen Pop uh, feed, but you can still listen to those episodes. So one of our last episodes, and we were, I was talking about how when I read reviews out um, on Storm Spoilers, occasionally I do them in the accent of the country of origin, only if the person has requested. And always the accents <laughs> are bad. But there are certain countries that I would never do an accent for. And usually what it comes down to is like, if the country of origin is predominantly white, I feel okay butchering the accent. So if it's like... I mean, maybe it's even inaccurate to say predominantly white, but if it's like a a Western European country, I feel like in pretty okay territory. If it were like an Asian country or an African country, except for like white South Africa, uh, which is an accent I like to do sometimes, I would never do it. And so we were just talking about like, you know, because Dave is, you know, Asian. And so he has a different perspective than I do about the world. But we were both like, he was just sort of like, yeah, I wouldn't ding you for doing that. And I'm like, I'm not looking for absolution. I'm just saying I think it's (laughs) funny and weird that like certain things feel okay. Like I'm not up in arms about them putting freckles on Emily Browning's face to make her Irish. But if you're an Irish person and you're like are mad about that. And that feels like Irish face to you or something like that. I'm like, I'm not going to argue with you. Like, I get it, man. I definitely do. And and it's interesting where our boundaries lie with that. Like I, I yeah. would be screaming if they put someone in like yellow face or black face or anything like that. But like, why is freckle face? Okay. You know, it's like, it's a weird, yeah. um, you know, a norm that we, that we have that, you know, well, so. I, I think, and I, I was thinking about this cause I thought it was, I thought it was, Something even as we were butchering those accents, it, I, it occurred to me that this was something that could cause offense because I've actually, um, I've actually been taken a task by a, a friend of ours who's British uh, for for trying to imitate uh, certain British accents and been told how rude that is. And I at, at the t- I mean I'm still sort of like well I mean I. <laughs> You know, people imitate American accents all the time. But then again, I when I when I think about that, there's a there's a certain, you know, privileged uh, position that that I have having this, you know, sort of Northern Californian American accent that doesn't really sound like anything. Um, 
to our and, ears. I've had people imitate me, and I'm like, fair enough. I hear, <laughs> I hear what you're doing. <laughs> to our ears, fair enough. But um, I, I also I postulate that for Americans, there are very few class accents. There are a few. If you're American, there are a few that you might pick up on and, and sort of mm. titter at, but it's not something, I mean, Americans imitate each other's accents all the time and you'll get taken to task if you do it wrong, but it's not offensive usually. So, I mean, if, if you are making fun of the place a person comes from, that's one thing. But if you're just imitating their accent, you're either doing it poorly or well, most people don't get offended about it. And sometimes, um, I think for, for Americans, it's just difficult to understand that especially because it, it's a highly, you know, immigrant, it's an immigrant heavy country, meaning like literally all the white people who live here are immigrants, uh, in, in some capacity from some period in time, it's hard to understand that people who you count yourself as, uh, having an shared ancestry with do not consider you a part of their culture. So, like, there are plenty of people in America of Irish heritage who would tell you, yeah, I'm Irish. An Irish person would say, like, hell you are. You didn't grow up in Ireland. Right. You're not, you grew up in America. You're not Irish. You're just white American. So I think there's, in, in terms of a cultural appropriation, that's something that Americans, especially white Americans, are frequently looking for is, is a, a kind of um, old world cultural heritage and so they lay claim to things that people who are actually from those countries would disagree with it's not meant to be offensive but there is an there is sort of an idea in the back of a lot of, of white americans minds i think that this is okay that this is something that belongs to them and there and therefore it's okay to imitate humorously without meaning offense but giving offense anyway yeah <laughs> Um, if we offended any Irish people, I am sorry. Very sorry. And like, and if there are, I mean, there are, because, um, you know, there's a link in this email to an Irish article that is upset about the way that Irish people are depicted. Like, basically, I guess Fianola Flanagan is like the only Irish, Irish, you know, like they couldn't get an Irish accent. You know, if they, if they're like, they couldn't get an Irish actress or an Irish actor to play Mad Sweeney. Like if there's some anger around that, I, I kind of understand um, so yeah, I, I think that it also, it's a subject that pales in comparison sometimes to other things in the American entertainment in entertainment industry, because, you know, there, there are any number of very famous Irish actors who have, you know, made it into not only Irish film, which is very, very good and, and celebrated, but American film and British film, whereas, uh, it is extraordinarily difficult for, for example, Asian actors to and 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 stories um, that feature Asian characters uh, that that causes a, a much bigger upset in the U.S. and that's a much more sensitive topic. So it's a little it's, it's I think it's hard for a lot of white Americans to understand that it would be a, a sensitive topic for. And that's another. I Irish mean, well, that's another. <laughs> Sorry. Thing. And this is the last. It it's an explanation, not an excuse. But well, this is the last thing I'll say before we should probably roll into the recap. But um, I was just thinking about like double standards sounds so like haughty or whatever. I don't I don't want to view it that way. But like 
there isn't any pushback as far as I can tell when an Irish actor like Colin Farrell does a very convincing American accent and plays American <laughs> in a movie. Uh, you know, uh, your mileage may vary, um, but, but he has done some very convincing American accents. Yeah, let's talk about Daniel Day-Lewis's accent, though, shall we? <laughs> um, Daniel Day-Lewis is a modern-day chameleon, Gil, and I won't hear anything otherwise. Uh, uh, last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> Uh, stay alive i will find you um, i'll find you <laughs> um i i don't know why you're talking about he's perfect um but the reverse like i think the reverse get you know like Gwyneth paltrow gets a lot of shit right for doing a british act uh, accent in shakespeare in love you know and, and emma like you know when american actors try to play british i think there's uh you know significantly more pushback when i just get an actor with with that accent um, anyway, I don't know. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point. Accents, cultural appropriation, it all feels appropriate for American gods. Appropriation is what is the name Ooh. of the game. Bringing it back around. In this episode. So, um, we kick off with the long awaited entrance of Mr. Nancy into the main narrative, right? Uh, <laughs> We saw him in, was it way back in episode two, I think, uh, Coming to America, but here he is making suits for Wednesday in Shadow, um, spinning spinning his finery, much like a spider would. Um, and as he does so, he tells the story of Bill Quist. And like, I've, I've heard some people are were not like super enchanted with the fact that the Bill Quist story was in this particular episode. Like they feel like it should have come earlier when we meet her or something like that. And I, what I will say is this. Anyone other than Orlando <laughs> Jones as Mr. Nancy were telling this Bill Quist story, I would kind of be like, this is so long. Why are we doing this? Like, but, but like he just told it with such freaking panache that, yeah. uh, you know, he like he starts and he strikes a pose and there's like a light on him as if he's going to like, you know, speak the gospel. And, um, you know, we, we go back in time. We're at the Temple of Baran, uh, 864 BC. We get uh, an orgy, which I think is like my fifth t- TV orgy of the year. <laughs> they are all the freaking rage. 2017, year of the TV year orgy. Year of the TV orgy. Uh, it reminded me of the scene from, I think it's like the second Matrix movie, right? When there's like this beautiful... Um, multi-ethnic future apocalyptic orgy that happens yeah i think it was the second it reminded me actually of the scene from um devil's advocate like (laughs) you know i'm talking about when like Mm -hmm. the walls start moving yeah anyway um and uh yeah and and mr nancy's voiceover says when the queen is done was done with you you were gone we see these worshippers sort of turn into goo and absorbed by her (laughs) worst ways to go he says uh and then we basically see like how bill quiz adapted to the times changing she became a disco queen basically in 1979 tehran um mr nancy repeats one of his lines from his coming to america vignette when he says anger gets shit done talking about um i guess some of the more austere uh, regulations that came into Tehran in the late 70s. Uh, he talks about 
I mean, it all becomes very gendered. It's all about like, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting to have like a man narrate, narrate the story, but it's all about like a strong woman, like a, a strong queen and how men can't like abide a strong queen or whatever, that they will take her back her power with guns and knives and sharp dicks, uh, which is just a great uh, image. They grabbed the power. They were too scared for a queen to have. They forced our queen into the back seat. This is a great line when he says, but back seats have cushions too. <laughs> she played the game by staying in the game. We see Bill Quist sort of like take a guy to the Mile High, High Club as she is brought to America via um, that young woman from Tehran, I believe. Then the AIDS epidemic puts a stop to, it feels like to me, the AIDS epidemic puts a stop to the year is 1988. The AIDS epidemic puts a stop to sort of the free, lo- the idea of free love and like club mm. culture and all that sort of stuff, which is what Bill Quist, you know, fed on. We see her as homeless, covered in lesions. Then the technical boy shows up uh, and offers her basically an app. And he says, worship is a volume business. Whomsoever has the most followers wins the game. We see her swiping. This is, of course, how she met her John in the first episode. So we find out something that I had that hadn't really occurred to me when we first saw that Bill Quisim, which is that, uh, like Vulcan, she is a god that has been uh, repackaged by the new mm. gods um, to embrace technology and find uh, new worshippers that way. It doesn't seem to me that that was sort of interesting to me because I couldn't tell, you know, what time period we were looking at her in the very first time, the very first thing that we saw her in this episode made me question when that actually happened because she was looking a little, a little worn down when we first met her. A little peaky. Yeah. And it, it, so it makes me that, that sort of called the timeline into question for me because um, I would have thought like, I, I liked the point made uh, by the episode, by the writers that, the the new club scene is sort of um, the seedier side of online dating, mm-hmm. which is sort of, you know sort of the the hookup app. Um, I thought that was that was well played, but it doesn't it, it yeah. In that first episode, it didn't seem like it was doing very well for Bill Quiz. Like she didn't seem like the god of that, like just someone who was sort of benefiting from it. Right, unless as you say, like that scene. So like we get unless, yeah, they were just, like immediately following each other we get this weird these like fun i will say like diegetic sort of uh the year is we see the year on her slippers as she's like shuffling homelessly Mm -hmm. through the streets it says 2013 so like if she started using the technical boys app in 2013 um it's possible that like what we saw in episode one was a, li- a little bit after because she looked way better than she looked in that street yeah. scene <laughs> but like a little bit after and then the montage that we saw were the intervening years of her I mean what's also true is that I do not at all you will never convince me that when they shot the pilot which was I think almost like years before they shot years is too much year and a half before they shot the rest you will never convince me that uh, they knew what they were going to do with Bill Quist. He knew what they were doing, yeah. (laughs) You know, that's just the nature of TV often, Mm -hmm. especially when you're launching a first season. You shoot a pilot, you have a long delay while the network sort of figures out what it wants to do. With American Gods, there was recasting, rewriting, all the sort of stuff that happened. And so, like, um, you know, I think it's possible that, uh, you know, that, that, that Brian Fuller and 
Michael Green would accept that timeline, but like maybe didn't have it meticulously planned out from from the jump, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Mr. Nancy's conclusion of his the moral of his story uh, is get yourself a queen. That's what he says to Wednesday and Shadow. Um, Shadow says he doesn't even know Wednesday's name. I mean, this is like this episode. This is more. (laughs) It's just the pinnacle of all the frustrations. Uh, and like hopefully if by the end of this episode we are done and that is in the rear view but mm. like it's just more of the same frustrations that you and I have shared and I've heard from a lot of listeners as well this like inconsistency of shadow in terms of what he has accepted and what he hasn't and I think yeah. this episode kind of tries to grapple with that a little bit uh, we can decide a little later on if it does it uh, successfully then we get this like terribly um, like beautiful, awful dream sequence of Shadow sort of like bursting through this bo- barrier of skulls, climbing up it uh, to, to maybe get to the world tree. The buffalo with the flaming eyes appears again, and then Shadow wakes up in the car, and they're in Kentucky. And we <laughs> see bunnies. So, what did you Terrifying make of bunnies. what did you make of this skull skull dream <laughs> skull thing? Well, that's a I mean that directly directly references um, some some things that happened in the book, although not exactly the way that they are being portrayed in the show. So the show keeps metering out um, bits and pieces of dream sequences, or or not even dream sequences, but experiences that Shadow is going supernatural experiences that Shadow is going to have. Um, it, yeah, it kind of feels like. Uh, <laughs> It it was it was sort of serving as a reminder that there was this flaming buffalo. Right, and this, a few episodes ago, this bone or nothing else is going to be yeah revealed or yeah. discussed. But by the way, don't forget about this. This yeah. will be important eventually. This is the thing eventually. Oh, the buffalo is white too, just like that buffalo we saw in the Ooh. in the Midwest at one point. Very mm. true. Um, Can, really quickly though, I I did want to go back quickly to Bill Quist just because. And this is a very personal thing, but of all the things in that episode that I found, or sorry, in that vignette that I found so moving, you know, Orlando Jones's narration was perfect. It was, it started off so aggressively and so showy, but he mellowed it out at one bit by bit until seeing, seeing Bilquis pressing her face up against the window as temple is destroyed like real footage of a real temple being destroyed this is the kind of thing that i cried watching that a little bit uh, i i thought it was so movingly done i remember i think i was in like fifth grade and i read it was like one sentence in a history textbook about like oh but and by the way the uh, library in alexandria was completely destroyed on purpose by people oh, yeah. And I was, I was just, I was so upset for ages. And every time, every time that one of these incredible pieces of history is just so carelessly, thoughtlessly destroyed, that was to me the perfect example of not callous, but actually malicious terrible destruction that human beings are are capable of to try and actually erase a piece of human history like that because it's it's not just it's not just 
take not just I mean that's a terrible thing to say, but 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 to take a life is terrible. But to to take a a piece of history that significant is to deny that so many people ever existed or had thoughts of their own. And it's I just it is so dreadful. It was very moving. I thought that was the perfect way to describe um again, getting very gendered, but to describe a a threat of oppression mm-hmm. in a culture or or in a group of people. That was the that was the perfect expression of true malicious oppression is to try and silence history, people who have already lived and made their mark. Yeah. To erase it. No, I'm I'm glad you went back to, to that. To yeah. attempt to erase it like yeah. that. How how arrogant and malicious and and short sighted. And it, I yeah, it well deserved the tears that were shed by a fictional character. The thing, like the thing I'll say about this episode is like, I think all, I I don't think it's, mm, I think if I had to rank like my favorite episodes of the season, Mm. this might come in probably fourth, maybe third, but, um, so not my favorite episode, but I think all the concepts are so brilliant and strong. Some of the execution is, is a little wonky to me, but like, I think all of the, really thoughtful things that they're doing in terms of like erasure. Cause we'll get to erasure when it comes to Easter as well. You know what I mean? And like, and a gendered erasure as well. So yeah. like um, all of the ways in which those things link or, or the way in which we see Bill Quist sort of like both Bill Quist and Easter sort of getting these offers from the new gods to repackage mm-hmm. and rebrand. I mean, it's like, it's all very fascinating to me. Um, and um, I'm just, I'm really so hopeful for season two. Cause I just, I think the concepts are all really strong. So, um, that brings us and and I will say, I hope in season two, we get more Mr. Nancy because like oh, two please. scenes is not enough. Every single line reading that Orlando Jones does is perfection to me. Um, so I just hope we get more of him. Okay. So. Shadow is sort of trying to like suss out where they're going and Wednesday's being like super coy and cute about it, which is just really annoying to me because I feel like once we see the bunnies, we all know where they're going. Um, but he does have this great line where he says, not for all the plastic toys in China. Um, <laughs> they pull up, pull up at the most gorgeous estate after sh- after Wednesday runs a bunch of bunnies over with the car for whatever <laughs> reason. They pull up at this gorgeous estate that's not just like a beautiful estate, but like is interesting. You know, like the architecture is super interesting. Um, And we see just the like production design on the show is bananas out out the window. And like they just outdo themselves in this episode where we see like rabbits, like spitted, spitted roasted rabbits and bunny (laughs) things and egg things everywhere and stigmata cookies and bunnies (laughs) pooping jelly beans and religious icon, like living religious icons everywhere. Mary's and Jesus's as far as I can see, lots of bonnets, et cetera, et cetera. So we have come. I mean, isn't this kind of the sixth orgy that you've seen in 2017? <laughs> it's not a sexual orgy, but it's definitely like up there with excess. Yes, it's an Easter orgy. And so, yeah, so this is the brilliant idea behind this holy show invented. Uh, I mean, Easter is a character in the show, but I believe they meet her in like 
a park in San Francisco, right? Isn't she like? Yeah, no, she was. She was like in Dolores Park or yeah, something. Yeah, she's like a, a, volupt- <laughs> a voluptuous flower uh, child having a picnic, having yeah. a picnic in a park. Yeah, in San Francisco. Uh, and Neil Neil Gaiman has actually talked about his fondness for San Francisco um, in a sort of. Uh, Oh, oh gosh, delirium sort of way that, you know, the Sandman character, like he, he's, he's familiar with San Francisco. He enjoys San Francisco, but he's, he's always in my, in my reading of, of his talking about San Francisco, he's had a sort of, um, kind of arm's length relationship with it. Like I love being here. I like experiencing this, but, uh, this is not sustainable. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I couldn't live like this. Right. And it was, it was actually, you know, as Joanna and I grew up, you know, and Joanna, very close to, and Joanna has actually lived for a considerable period of time in San Francisco. And, um, yeah, the, that depiction of San Francisco in the book, which was, as I said, published in the early aughts, uh, yeah, it was like 2001. Yeah. That's not really like a very accurate, that's not, I mean, it's not, it's not that San Francisco anymore. Yeah, there are definitely like people hanging out in the park eating food, but it was just sort of a funny representation of San Francisco to me. I don't know how you felt about it. Oh, I've no. always I've always felt it was like just a slightly ham-handed for Neil Gaiman. No, it's definitely like Summer of Love, San Francisco, which is not yeah. what San Francisco is now, nor was <laughs> maybe it Berkeley. Maybe you Berkeley. Know? So, um, but yeah, and and like when American Gods was first announced. Um, I mean, it's been in a question in the air for a long time, but sort of like when it was officially announced, which was several years ago, uh, a lot of people really wanted um, Christina Hendricks for the role of Easter because that is how she's oh. described in the book. She's just like, yeah. like her cups runneth over in every sense of the word. You know what I mean? Not to be uh, like, I don't mean that to be super crass. I just mean like she just is like excess and beauty and like whatever personified. <laughs> and um, so Kristen Chenoweth is like a very interesting a choice because she is like you know super petite and compact and like <laughs> almost almost brittle in a way um whereas i think of the easter uh the ostara of the book is very like soft and all this sort of stuff like that she's got this like adorable southern hospitality thing that she's doing that's mixed with like nine other things and and it works for me like i quite like her in this episode but mm-hmm. it is a you know brian fuller obviously worked with Chris and Chenoweth and Pushing Daisies. So this feels like a loyalty hire to me, which is not, I'm not necessarily opposed to. She's a great actress. <laughs> so we see Chris and Chenoweth as Ostara, as Easter. Um, so quick background on East Ostara. How do you pronounce the, the E-O-S-T-R-E spelling? Oistra? I've always said Oestra. Yeah, okay. Uh, Anglo-Saxon personification of the dawn, a fertility goddess and friend to children. She changed her pet bird into a rabbit to amuse them. Um, Easter is equivalent to the Greek Eos and the Roman Aurora. So uh, we have her here in like with extremely sculpted hair and Easter bonnet, of course, <laughs> and wearing like a beautiful floral dress and being like the hostess with the mostest at this Easter Sunday celebration on her day is what she calls it. Um, and she has invited all of the, the versions of Jesus and Mary and, and all the other, the, the Christian iconography that's associated with Easter now. 
And then we get okay. So this is this is going to be a fun fun thing for you, Gail. Is I don't think you've ever podcast with me when I've had to talk about someone that I quite fancy. Um, if you'd ever, if you had ever done a podcast with me about Game of Thrones, you would have had like you would have rolled your eyes all through me talking about Jorah Mormont stuff like that. Like I've got my like favorites, Jeremy Davies. <laughs> Who plays Jesus here has been my favorite. Was my favorite on Lost. Was my favorite on Justified. Like he is an actor who has been my favorite. Every time he shows up in anything, I got really excited. He was on Twin Peaks last weekend. I got so excited. Here he is as Jesus. When I sent you the photo of Jesus last week, I sent you the photo before you had seen it. You said he looked mm-hmm. like a beetle, and that helped me understand why this is even more of a big deal to me because you know how I feel about the Beatles. So he does look like George Harrison in full, like, Maharishi mode. And um, we find out later in the episode that uh, this version of Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. So... Uh, Jeremy, you know, you could call him white Jesus if you want, but there are a lot of other white <laughs> Jesuses around the joint. He is Jesus of Nazareth. When he appears, there's this great halo effect, which we already saw in Mexican Jesus that happens just like with the light fixtures behind him. We see it again later in the episode. I love the halo effect. Um, Shadow says, hey, do I know you? Uh, Jeremy Davis says, Jesus says, yes, yes, you do. Uh, but like, like a, like a sort of tired celebrity, like he's not mad about it. No. You know, he's, he's not like, Oh damn it. Another person's not, he's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, no, yeah, you know, just a, a polite, but weary sort of rock star. Weary, weary is a really good word for it. Yeah. A weary <laughs> rock star. I love that. We see him being gallant. Like he kisses, um, Easter's hand at some point. Like, um, he's not like jaded, but yeah, he's a, a little, a little world, world weary what did you think of and you you can not like him it's allowed but what did you think of this version of Jesus who we meet here I I did actually really like this Jesus I I liked him even better a little bit later yeah. which we'll get to but um no I I liked in the context of this show in particular where all the gods like have their you know they're they're all sort of scrabbling for their bit of fame um Dear listener, I just I just spent four days in Aspen, Colorado, at the <laughs> food and <laughs> Aspen Food and Wine, um, and it was was you know like being introduced to, and going to parties with the quote unquote the worst thing I've ever heard the glitterati of the wine industry what? and like <laughs> yeah so it, it reminded me in some respects of these gods that like nobody cares about anymore all like scrabbling for their little bit of fame. And then you have Jesus who's like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you know me. You know me. I'm Jesus. Everyone knows me. <laughs> not really. Not pretentiously. Just like, no, no, you do actually. Yeah. You do know me. I'm an actual rock star. You've never heard any of these people. <laughs> They're a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. He's like, I'm Mick Jagger. I don't get that out of my system. <laughs> I'm Mick Jagger. You don't, no one else here matters. Um, <laughs> The the episode is full. This episode is full of like it's it's almost like a I always say doors and sardines, which is a noises off reference, but it oh it like, it reminds me of like a, a doors and sardines kind of uh, setup where you have Kristen mm-hmm. Chenoweth's Easter running around trying to manage all the people at this party in her house. It's a kind of, it's a faulty towers kind of comedy that I that I quite like. Um, yes, and I don't know that it reaches like the fever pitch of Zany that. 
any of those other things do, but I think that's sort of what they were going for a bit. And uh, from the to- moment she shoves Wednesday into a room, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and to that end, we get a lot of really fun um, language uh, in this episode around Jesus and God and stuff like that, right? So she's like, she's giving her speech. He's just giving the speech. She's full gracious hostess. And she goes, remember what this day is all about. And then she sees Wednesday and her face falls and she goes, oh, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's, uh, it's very, I, I liked that, all that stuff. Um, it's all part and part. That's one of the reasons that I love that they made her this perfect Southern hostess is because like when the facade falls, she, first of all, like she does, I mean, is that her accent? I, I feel like I've heard her do that accent sufficient times to think that that's what she really sounds like. She certainly looks like it. Like everything everything about her um, just screams perfect Southern hostess, all white meat all the time in her chicken salad. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> like that moment, I was so in love with it because it's, it's, it's that type of hostessing is – yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, restraint and manners that go into it, and when you get caught off guard, boy, boy, you know you've really caught a good Southern hostess off guard if you make her face fall. Yeah. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, Chris Last Chen- person she did. Kristen Chenoweth is from Oklahoma, and she is a quarter Cherokee. Um, but that accent, I do think, is bona fide. Uh, so she says, please help yourself and those less fortunate than you to the buffet, uh, which struck me as more Jesus humor. And then we see some like super weird Jesus humor, which is mm-hmm. these jelly beans running through the stigmata uh, in, I think it was like Greek Orthodox Jesus's hands. Um, someone else can correct me if that's that was not Greek Orthodox Jesus, but that's what it looked like to me. It and Jesus should not have been picking up jelly beans. Yeah. Yeah. He should get some gloves or something. It was gross because it's just like candy through a bloody wound. Super gross. The, I, I, okay. And, and to that, um, that Jesus was looking sort of mournful, but also a little surprised that that was happening to him. And I did love that the Jesus is, you know, and as, and in previous episodes, we've said like, I have, I have warm feelings towards Catholicism and, and Jesus in general. That being said, the sort of like, sheepiness of all of the Jesuses just sort of like they're kind of, you know, wandering around. Not they're, more, they're the flock. They were just sort of like a flock of kind of nice guys. Yeah. She calls them her gaggle, but they definitely uh-huh. like there you see the boys. shots you see a shot of herds of lambs behind her. And you know, and like <laughs> Lamb of God, like all that stuff. Like it's all and we eat lamb on Easter. It's all connected man and lamb is a symbol of fertility, man. But um, yeah, you're right that they were like all dressed in like white linens of some kind. Yeah, just sort they, were, of just, and like, they were just sort of sheeping about. You're right. Booching around. Yeah. Like, like they weren't even really sure why they were there. Yeah. <laughs> um, Shadow asks Wednesday once again, who like Wednesday's like, yeah, gods. And Shadow looks around the room like, oh, my God, these are actually like oh. Jesus and Mary. And I'm like, there's Mary. We clocked her before. Yeah. But check it out. That uh, chick is totally Mary. Blue dress. Why is Halo. this a revelation to Shadow when like he's met Vulcan and he's met, like it's like it continues to baffle me. Okay. So um I'm as baffled as Shadow is basically. Um 
he asks Wednesday who he is. Wednesday says, you wouldn't believe in me if I told you. Not you wouldn't believe me if I told you, but you believe believe in me if I told you. Basically saying the time's not right. You're not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Shadow seems a bit smitten with Easter, which I think is straight out of the book and like who wouldn't be. Um, Easter says significantly to Wednesday, I'm not one of you. Um she says, happy Easter, crisis risen. Hello, boys. Um, and yeah, so like Easter basically has successfully like rebranded, has successfully like glommed herself on to, well, the Christians glommed themselves onto Easter's holiday, ah. but she is like adapted in return and glommed herself right back and been like, okay, I will suck whatever praise I can out of the way in which I've been edged out of my own holiday, but I can still make it about me a little bit. So here we go. Right. In that respect, she does make a worthy queen because she has not had to resort to modern gods, so to speak, to rebrand herself. It kind of got handed to her by an older God. So she gets to, she she enjoys a position of power and prestige. She is still beholden. I feel like media gives the implication that media was somehow in, like that's true. Credit. That being said, she hasn't she hasn't been like bought and sold. She's she yeah. She's she still she is being fought for. Media yes. would like her in that in that scene. Media would like her to think. Media definitely wants her to subscribe to the the belief that she um, owes everything to the modern gods. But when she's literally like they she they film her in the middle between yeah. media and Wednesday having this conversation and she keeps looking back and forth between them because truth be told, like it was a pretty old variety of media that rebranded her like going back, you know, to, you know, fairly shortly after 80. So after the switchover. And this this is sort of like what Wednesday says, right? As he says, um, they mouth your name, but he gets all the prayers. Like he's basically saying, don't settle for, the, don't settle to be like a guest star in your own day, right? Like a host for these moochers, these yeah. jobless hobos. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jeremy Davies gives up. They're all perfect, living off their dad's cred. Jeremy Davies, who's like in soft focus while they're talking, <laughs> gives this perfect line reading where he goes, oh, I feel terrible about this. And like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just going to stop and praise everything. Praise his name, everything he does. Okay. Um, and then we get exactly what you're talking about. The, I guess the doors and start first doors and sardines moment when Easter shoves Wednesday into a room with like, um, the most insane pink bunny wallpaper you've ever seen in your life. Um, and I'm just like, I was just thinking, I wasn't thinking about the cost, the budgetary cost of any of the things in this Easter sequence, except for, how much did Brian Fuller pay to paper a room in that? Like someone had to paper that room, and then oh, wasn't presumably just that room either. And presumably, oh, was it the whole house? There was a lot of wallpaper in that house. There was so much patterning. Well, I feel it was, like some it of it amazing. could have been like some of it could have been existent in the property, but that <laughs> definitely wasn't. Like the pink bunnies <laughs> were definitely a Brian Fuller touch. So. um Easter, she screams at Wednesday. And she says, how dare you uncork all over Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Uncork is <laughs> n- not a, a phrase that I use often enough, and I hereby vow to use it more. <laughs> and then Shadow looks on as Wednesday lies to her, and he says, they killed Gul- Vulcan. He means the new gods. Uh, he pulls out the terrible, ugly-ass sword that Vulcan made for him. Um, and basically says like Vulcan made me this sword and swore his fealty to me and the new gods killed him because of it. That's obviously not what happened. 
Shadow doesn't contradict him. In fact, Shadow sort of like helps him at the end of this of this particular grift. Um, mm. And basically, uh, Wednesday says to Easter, they will worship you if you make them pray. So um, I, she seems impressed with that terrible sword. I don't know why. It looks so ugly. I hate it. Okay. Um, Bill Quiz has gone back to the museum, her favorite, I think, uh, field trip to take. And the technical boy crashes her visit. Explain to me, Gail, what actually the technical boy is wearing in the sea because like he has a number of outlandish outfits that i can kind of understand this one was definitely the weirdest this one looked very like um very flash gordon to me that was a weird one and furthermore he's like supplemented the teeth that he had knocked out he's wearing like braces and like fake teeth it almost looks like a you know like a pro wrestler He's wearing a uh, grill. Like mouth guard? Yeah, it was really weird. And he, he keeps the grill throughout the rest of the episode. So I yeah. have to assume this is like now part of Technical Boys um, ensemble. But yeah, that, that outfit, I was like, this seems like something media would wear if she was Timothy Dalton in Flash Gordon. What's happening? <laughs> like, the, the, the fronts I kind of like for his teeth because um, – that's like that's something from like current black culture, and so like I could just see like a shitty white millennial boy yeah, yeah. wearing them works for me. Everything else he's wearing in that scene, I like. If someone else wants to explain to me what the yeah. reference point is for that, I would I would be delighted to hear it. I don't know. Don't piss off wardrobe. I think. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so technical boy, uh, you know calls in his his favor with Bilquist and he says basically mm. like you've done well with the with tools I gave you now it's time to work for me she tries to seduce him and he um he has a great line where he says something about being hands free basically hands off but he says hands free which is a great technical boy thing to say and uh you know basically he does not have the functioning organs that would be susceptible to Bilquist's charm and he says but if you point that gun in the right direction um so who do we think he would try to loose Bilquis on. Oh, geez. I mean, I, my, my first guess would be shadow. Uh, and that is partly based on the fact, I don't think they'd be, I, I don't think that would be in Mr. World's plan, nor do I think it would be a very reasonable expectation for it to work on Wednesday, even though Wednesday does need his like weird, um, waiter's tribute worship, at least in the book. Um, yeah, but I think it's too, I think Wednesday's too canny. To... He's much too canny. It's not going to work. And he knows who Bilquis is. He's, he's made a study of this, uh, based on all the conversations. So I would say shadow. And I base this in part on the, the insistence that Wednesday has that shadow not get too friendly with Astara and that there is something to be avoided about having her take a fancy to him. Mm, So there's something about shadows relations that Wednesday is, is feeling insecure about or wants to keep a a handle on. And so Bill Quist is definitely, she, if if she were to be able to accomplish what Wednesday doesn't want a star to accomplish, apparently that's a bad thing. That's my guess. Oh, I like that. I mean, I think I don't think it could be anyone else. So I think uh, you're right. right. Nobody, everybody else knows who everybody else is. So it's got to be the newcomer. <laughs> it's got to be the mortal, the dumb human. Uh, <laughs> but like, I don't think this is this is going to work. And I think it's probably going to be Bilquis's undoing. And I think that's mm-hmm. a shame. 
So, um, our favorite dynamic duo, Mad Sweeney and Laura, <laughs> roll up in the ice cream truck. Uh, Laura sort of kicks Mad Sweeney awake, and he has like found many, many layers to bury himself <laughs> under. Laura's found many, many more flies to be her yes. entourage. Yes, she's looking grayer than ever. Oh my God. She has followed Shadow's glow to this house. Um, and well, I mean, like Mad Sweeney was having them go there anyway, but the the glow has sort of helped her guide guide her even after he fell asleep. We see Mexican Jesus alive and well. Um, a testament to the powers of makeup. I am having a hard time seeing the Emily Browning of the previous episode in the Emily Browning of this episode. Oh. She looks awful. She looks like, ghastly. She, she I know. just doesn't I look it. like herself at all. Then we come to the scene that I think you were alluding to, probably. It's not my favorite scene in the episode, only because I think only one half of the scene is really working, and that half of the scene is sitting on top of a pool. We see Jesus of Nazareth <laughs> sitting atop a swimming pool, cross-legged. He drops his drink. He puts. It, he goes to rest his drink on the water. The water does not take the glass. The glass sinks, and he goes, God damn it in the most hilarious like i could watch that over and over again the most hilarious <laughs> world weary as you said gail way um shadow's like excited but amused to meet jesus um and here i want to sort of like press pause and and uh dive into something that we alluded to in a previous episode and one of our listeners kindly pointed me to neil gaiman's official explanation as to why he cut jesus from the original text of american gods uh, this is a quote from the 10th anniversary edition. And he says, I've been looking forward to writing the meaning of shadow and Jesus for the most of the book. I couldn't write about America without mentioning Jesus. After all, he's part of the warp and the weft of the country. And then I wrote their first scene together in chapter 15 and it didn't work for me. I felt like I was alluding to something that I couldn't simply mention in passing and then move on from. It was too big. So I took it out again. I nearly put it back in assembling this author's preferred text. Actually, I did put it here. You can read it. I'm just not sure that it's necessarily part of American Gods. And then there's, if you get the 10th anniversary edition, there is the interaction between Jesus and Shadow. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a swimming pool scene. Um, and um, <laughs> yeah, so that that's a, it's, I think that's similar to sort of what we were talking about, where it, it does feel like Jesus is too big and sort of almost the way to diffuse it is what they've done in the series, which is to make him smaller by replicating him, basically. <laughs> you know, it's not one yeah. big Jesus concept. It's all these these wee Jesuses running around the place. So. Um, Shadow- photocopy Jesus. <laughs> Photo- photocopy Jesus. Um, Shadow asks Jesus of Nazareth uh, if he always believed. And he says, I am belief Shadow. I don't know how not to believe. And then this is where Shadow sort of tries to explain his inconsistent reaction to things that we've seen throughout the season, frustratingly, where he's like, sometimes I think I'm dreaming and sometimes I think I'm awake and I don't know how to react and yada, yada, yada. And um, what what did you make of this interaction? Yeah. Um, I, I liked that line. I am believe Shadow. I don't know how not to believe. Sort of like... My dad made me do. My dad. My dad made me inherit the company. It's all I've ever known. And so, <laughs> it was. I mean, like I'm making fun of it, but it was. I thought it was sort of a moving line, actually. Yeah. That like this is a different kind of God, by virtue of of how he is actually defined in his own mythology, if you will, um, because uh, the yeah the there's um. 
I believe it was, I believe it was Kierkegaard who came up with the night of faith, um, which was a, a concept of the purest kind of faith ever. And, and he chose Abraham from the old Testament to be his mm-hmm. quote unquote night of faith, which is, uh, Abraham, Paul's son, Isaac, up onto the mountain and is prepared to absolutely definitely kill him because God told him to. God stops him at the last minute. It's all fine. But um, the the idea behind this philosophy, you know, philosophy of, of perfect faith was that uh, there were three tenets. First, that Abraham absolutely, totally believed that the person he heard in his head was God. Secondly, that he was absolutely and totally definitely prepared to sacrifice his son, Isaac. He was a second away from actually doing it. And then the third, I believe is that, um, he believed it was uh, absolutely the right thing to do and that, and that his God was good and right. I may have gotten the third one wrong, but, um, it, I, it, that came into my mind when I, when I heard that line, because there is so much of, um, Christianity and, and Catholicism that's been sort of set down as a, a rule book. You absolutely have to believe in just this God and no other gods. This is a very important tenet of this particular brand of monotheism and, and in, in, in competition very much with other religions, which have, you know, multiple deities. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I when I heard that line, I thought that was an interesting sort of reference to the nature of Christianity yeah. and Catholicism. Is that this is the this this religion considers itself the the Judeo excuse me the the Christian religions consider themselves the ultimate of belief. There is nothing else to believe in, just this. So if you create a God based on ultimate perfect total faith. Well, that God doesn't understand anything else in this world. Maybe that's why they sort of move around the scenery like sheep is like, well, what is there else? to? I mean, everybody believes perfectly, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what? This used to be your day? I thought it was. I know. Wait, I what? really love that line. Like, yeah. oh, my God. Like, they're just waking up to this. I feel so terrible. Yeah. Like, it's not all about me. They're all like basically kind of fratty trust fund stoners. <laughs> they just. <laughs> Like, who, that's like how, that's who, how they report who, who definitely did like a year abroad in Tibet or maybe like South America <laughs> and came back with their like white linens and they're like they're like sort of assimilated it. Here's my beard and my uh, cool white linens that I wear now from when I was abroad. Uh, <laughs> but as you say, dad dad has forced me to run the company. Um yeah, and that's, I mean, at one point Easter sort of refers to them as gods and, and Wednesday very dismissively goes like, well, son of, you know, <laughs> and like they're, they're not quite gods. Um, so speaking of which, we cut back to Wednesday and Astara. Uh, he suggests she, she starve them, being, I guess, humans, people who might worship her, into submission, that hunger was an Asian form of prayer and that they've, they've never been hungry, meaning, you know, fat happy americans and um and she withholds she returns that's that's how her, her her certain power works then this first of two bunny messengers come up and she goes holy shit in response great moment. i love it when she swears yes all great 
we cut to Laura looking, as you mentioned earlier, disgusting. She is vomiting up maggots. Um, and then uh, Easter comes in and like immediately starts fussing. She goes, don't stoop. Someone tried to raise you with refined manners. Uh, she calls her dead girl. She puts like a butterfly pin on like to help close one of Laura's gaping wounds, like gilding the, the disgusting Lily. Um, she hates Mad Sweeney, which is adorable. <laughs> really love it when, when women uh, beat up on Mad Sweeney. When anyone when, hates Mad yes. Sweeney, but especially tiny women. Yes. <laughs> Laura describes, I think, for the first time, the condition of like her, her death, which is that she's thirsty all the time and it's cold in her bones. Um, Easter looks into Laura's eye to see the last thing she saw that Laura saw when she died. And she sees Sweeney and she sees the Raven. Um, and she says, you can't help Laura because of Wednesday's involvement in her death. You were killed by a God that is a dead without undoing, not by, by doing anyway. And then the bunny messenger shows up again and she goes, Oh shit. I have other guests. So I really, hostess's work is never done. I really enjoyed this uh, interaction between Easter and Sweeney and Laura. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Yeah, I, I missed the line actually when she said, "Don't stoop." <laughs> uh, I, but I did catch that she said, "Someone tried to raise you with refined manners," yeah. as in like <laughs> maybe your mom, maybe your mom wasn't such a bad hat. You could have learned something. <laughs> and also, don't think you're hiding. <laughs> I, I can see it. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting uh, piece of the rule book that. This is the resurrectionist that Sweeney had promised. So now he's SOL in terms of, of his, you know, deal getting his coin back. But also um, that there's some kind of caveat uh, or or um, system among these gods that says that uh, if if one of them has a beef with a mortal, then the other ones can't step in and work their magic sort of reminded me of what we talked about with Anubis like why does Anubis show up for Laura and he says like the condition of your death compels me or something like that like there are these weird like inter-god rules of like he shows up because she was killed by a god and um, it feels like to me given the, the way when she says I can't undo it it can't be undone not by me anyway feels like the person who could undo it only person would be Wednesday and like under what condition would he do that so you know i could be wrong we'll 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 see in season two then we have jillian anderson show up anderson show up as judy garland this time wearing like an almost exact replica of judy garland's uh final dress in the film easter parade she's so uh, really quickly i have to confess that i have not seen easter parade joanna knows this uh my my ignorance of judy garland knows no bounds that being said, as soon, Jillian, Jillian Anderson is so amazing. As soon as, and their customers are great too. As soon as she walked onto the scene, I immediately knew based on her dress and all of her mannerisms that she was supposed to be Judy Garland in a thing. I didn't even know what it was until Joanna had just said it, but I knew immediately she's Judy Garland right now. She's so good. See, I disagree. Agree. Oh yeah, um, and which is fine. But uh, you know how I feel about Judy Garland. She's a very important figure to me. I thought this was like Jillian Anderson's worst impression. Like the costume's great. <laughs> um, you and I have both seen the film Little Voice, uh, starring mm -hmm. Jane Horrocks, where in which Jane Hor the actress Jane Horrocks 
uh, of AbFab fame, does this like <laughs> bonkers Judy Garland impression. It's like it so is good. so good. It's not easy to do. And I mean, and so I don't blame Julian Anderson. I don't have a Judy Garland impression, certainly. Like I don't blame her for not quite, in my opinion, not quite nailing it. What bothered me is like she, I thought, came off as like really vacuous. As yeah. like very winsome and vacuous. And that's just not how I see Judy Garland at all. Uh, she's actually quite scrappy in both Easter Parade and some other things. And so, um, I don't know. It, it did not, it did not sit well for me, but she is, she is quoting up a storm from, uh, Easter Parade, uh, mm-hmm. songs, couple of swells and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, the, uh, one of, uh, the technical boys children has shown up dressed as Fred Astaire from Easter Parade. So, you know, they look, camera ready and 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 glorious and then uh we cut back to laura who is holding sweeney up a wall by the fork of his uh pants <laughs> and he says you weren't murdered you were sacrificed he needed your man needed him to be in a place where he had nothing left in the world um and here I'm, i i mean i know we're running long and i want to like take forever but here i do want to take a quick detour to talk about Brian Fuller's thing with dead girls. Good um, too. So, um, two of Brian Fuller's previous, I, I wrote about this a bit on VF.com today, but like two of Brian Fuller's previous series, dead like me and, uh, pushing daisies have a dead girl as the leading lady. Um, I think Brian Fuller has a thing for dead girls. Mm-hmm. And some people pointed out that the character of Abigail Hobbs in Hannibal is also sort of in the, in the dead girl territory. Um, what Brian Fuller does do instead, though, um, or or I will say this, Dead Girls, Dead Wives, Dead Girlfriends, Dead Wives, or or Pretty Young Dead Girls starting mm-hmm. TV series, that is a trope as old as the hills. What doesn't usually happen is they don't then get to have a say in anything. And yeah. so what I find so fascinating about this version of Laura and also to a certain degree, Chuck on pushing daisies mm-hmm. and, and, and George and uh, dead like me is, is, you know, these are dead girls uh, with voice with agency. And, um, you know, so for, for Sweeney to say uh, he needs your man, need him to be in a place where he had nothing left in the world. Like that's just the beginning of so many movies is like the, you know, the, the hero mm-hmm. has lost his girl mm-hmm. and now he needs to, you know, blah, blah. And, um, and that's a certain, to a certain degree, what Neil Gaiman is doing in American Gods because Laura is not that interesting in the books. But to give her so much depth and, and um, motivation of her own in the show, I really think that Brian Fuller is turning that very common trope on its ear, and I really appreciate him for it. What do you want to say? <laughs> this is so interesting because um, you are you're helping to complete a picture of my feelings about this in my head. So when, you know, when, when I looked at this, I was thinking a lot about, uh, you know, Brian Fuller's dead girl fascination and, um, the character of Laura and the character of Chuck and I, my passing familiarity with the characters on, um, dead like me. And it occurred to me that, and, and, and this is, this is no, there's no judgment on Brian Fuller. This is more judgment on, on our society, that these characters in or it, it almost in order for them to in Chuck's case feel free uh, to do whatever it was that she wanted to do or in Laura's case to 
take action and decide to pursue something aggressively in her life. Um, they had to die to do that. And that worried me that that sort of sat ill with me because, um, for the, the things that Laura does, super, supernatural strength aside and the way that Chuck behaves sort of a, you know, manic pixie dream girl kind of behavior pattern, they don't, they don't read as well. They don't scan as well for a woman who hasn't completely sort of lost everything or, or had to restart her life in some way. And as a person who has a fairly well-established life, and I think a lot of women would agree with me, it's not, you know, you don't want to have to completely like reinvent yourself or in a, you know, in effect die in order to have the power to just do what it is that you want to do or, or you find meaningful or, or pursue the thing that is really important to you. And I may be like projecting quite a lot onto these characters, but it's comforting to me to hear you express, you know, your opinion that this is actually, um, a reversal of the traditional victimhood of women as a, um, plot device, yeah. which I object very strongly to. And you've heard me express very strong opinions about uh, any kind of female victimhood as a plot device for a male character. I really, really strongly object to that. Right. I, it, I find it very disgusting and upsetting. But um, this, this was sort of, to me, it was sort of a reversal of that situation where um, the, the, the female characters were granted power by virtue of the fact that they had nothing else. They, they had had everything taken from them and now they got to do something else. And it, those two extremes, I, it, it would perhaps it's just that it's sort of boring to find a middle ground, but is it only boring, you know, and, and this is a very, this is a very extreme example in this show. Obviously this is a lot of supernatural elements we're talking about. It's natural, within the context of this story for the causes of, you know, people's decisions and behaviors to be super crazy and out of the norm. But in a, like in a, in a broader context of Brian Fuller's work, it makes me wonder, you know, is, is this just a pendulum swing in the other direction where a strong female character almost can't be a strong female character unless uh, she has had all of the norms of society basically removed from her life. Effectively, I by mean, life. I don't want to like. I, I I agree with you. Like I re I really want to talk to Brian Fuller's therapist about Brian Fuller's <laughs> things with dead girls, right? Like it's weird, not weird. That's judgy, but like yeah. it's fascinating it's to consistent. me that he has this thing with dead girls, and like part of me. Actually, I don't. I don't really feel qualified to talk about this, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I agree that there it cuts both ways. I think. I think it is interesting, you know, I'm I'm also like so deep in the world of Twin Peaks, which is like so famously about like a young, mm -hmm. beautiful girl who's murdered and then like all these people talking about really how they didn't know her. And it's not until like much later that you get her perspective on anything, but oftentimes you don't get that dead girl's perspective at all. And so mm -hmm. I am grateful that... Laura's role has been expanded. I think Emily Browning is doing like mm -hmm. such a good job with it. We both agree on that. And um, yeah, I think, you know, if anyone else listening has any thoughts on Brian Fuller's thing with dead girls, please do <laughs> give us a shout. We love, we love to if talk Brian, about it. 
Polish therapist is listening. Yeah. Feel free to give, give us a ring. Um, covertly break your oaths. Yeah. But um Laura, the 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 money question that Laura asks uh Sweeney is what does Wednesday have to lose? And I you know, I mean I feel like the answer here is the same as it was with Bilquis, which is Shadow. Like if she can take Shadow back from Wednesday, that's her power play. Um we find out from Easter that there's a Jesus hanging around the place of the baby dinosaur, which I took to be an allusion to sort of like, I don't know. I've heard dinosaurs called Jesus horses. I think that's a Saturday Night Live oh, joke. Boy. But like, I don't know if there's another reason that there would be a Jesus with a baby dinosaur. Um, I feel like that is like maybe the perfect example of like the truly American Jesus, though, because like how many times has it been in the news, like some Christian group trying to explain there's, there's like a whole thing about trying to explain away the presence of dinosaurs by being like, well, God made them and then it was a mistake and he killed them all. And it all happened within the space of like 30 minutes. Something, you know, some weird stuff like that. I'm sorry if I'm being very offensive no, no, no. to any of our listeners, but um, it, the, the, whole, the whole baby dinosaur thing, I felt like that was a reference to the total irrationality of, of certain certain beliefs. There is definitely... You know, as much as the spaghetti monster is a joke, there are plenty of equally implausible Jesuses out there. And Jesus with a baby dinosaur, I felt like, was the, was the reference to the ridiculous Jesuses that definitely exist. Uh, people will just make up anything in order to explain away things that they don't want to admit are true. I, okay, I feel like, so I'm just Googling this while you're talking. I'm listening to you and Googling it <laughs> I could do both. Um <laughs> I um and there's a like if you if you Google Jesus baby dinosaur you get a lot of hits of like roundup of of art and this mm-hmm. is like this reminds me of that time that we found out that there was like a whole internet thing about dragons fucking cars that I, yeah. I was I was not aware of it's true it's true dear listener if you Google dragons fucking cars you will get some delightful treats but uh, there's a lot of um imagery of Jesus with dinosaurs floating around the internet. So this is like, I think an internet thing. Um, in addition to what you were saying, there's one, the the best one that I'm looking at is like, it's a classic Jesus photo where Jesus is like holding a lamb, but instead of a lamb, it's a baby velociraptor. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, good times. Jesus and baby dinosaurs. Okay. Hopefully that just is a hilarious Jurassic Park reference. <laughs> um, the Fred Astaire looking uh, children accompanying media start to multiply. Um, Easter says this great thing where she says, I feel like I've been misrepresented in the media. <clears throat> a great line. Media says St. Nick took the same deal you did. Mm. So like, of course, um, you know, Christmas was not always Jesus's birthday. Saint <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nicholas uh, was a few other things before he was John you know Saint Nick. Yes. You know what's so interesting is that actually um, there are, there are some sort of theories or connections to Saint Nicholas being Odin originally, and uh, Odin, you know, with the Wild Hunt riding over or Hern, which is also uh, connected to Odin um, and the Wild Hunt being the originators of, of certain iterations of St. Nick or Santa Claus. So that's a weird arcane connection to make. Yeah. Santa Claus. Um, 
<laughs> Media says you should be thrilled that anyone believes in anything that doesn't have a screen anymore, which I think is a great line. And then the children start doing this weird little dance, which both and them and the soundtrack kicks up, not in the annoying jazz way, but in a fun, jaunty little tune way. And uh, it both was fantastic and annoying me because sl- it's slightly out, like slightly arrhythmic, which is the point, I'm sure. But also like I the the deepest part of me wanted it to go full blown musical in that point, And it didn't. And <laughs> I, like, I just wanted a full blown song and dance number and I didn't, I didn't get it. So, um, <laughs> the technical boy shows up in his version of a tuxedo, which is great. He's got these like, um, like amazing, like sort of culotte pants on. Um, this outfit makes much more sense than his flash Gordon museum outfit. Uh, he tells Odin, you don't have the juice. You're old as fuck. You can't find progress. Little shitty millennials. I, you know, Gail and I are technically millennials. So when I say shitty, a shitty millennial, like I'm allowed to because I'm one of them. Um, yeah, not not our kind of millennial. The other kind. Yeah, the bad ones. The bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. World also shows up, but I deeply suspect that Crispin Glover was nowhere near the set. I mean, it's not just like a fun special effect. Like, I really do believe that Crispin Glover's like, yeah, I want to film this one from my room. Um, he says you only matter in matters of war and there's not going to be a war. It's either going to be a bloodbath or we wait you out. Um, and then Odin calls down the thunder and lightning. And he says, I dedicate these deaths to Astara and he strikes the children down. Shadow has his come to Jesus moment, which gives us our episode title. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is actually really fun for me. Cause when I was, you know, I know I've mentioned a couple times how I went down to LA to watch, like they locked me in a little room and I watched some, uh, American gods. They were editing in the next room and they were editing this scene. And I only know because like they kept, they were just editing one tiny little clip over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's when it's when Ian McShane goes, I am Odin, like that whole part. And I just I heard it looped like a thousand times. And it's been like sort of stuck in my head on repeat ever since. So it was very cathartic to see it on the screen. But you know, he he names himself. He tells Easter you are a star Ostara, show them who you are. She sucks the land dry, spring recedes, and Shadow believes in everything. Um, and then uh, Mr. World says, you wanted a war, glad of war, glad of war being one of Odin's um, names. You have one, be glad, it'll be the one you die in. And um, yeah, before before we wrap up with two more quick things, like what do you think? What do you think of this moment of of sort of Ostara coming into herself and Odin having his declaration of war and 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 Shadow finally fucking getting on page on the same page oh as everyone God. else in the show? Uh, I loved it when Ostara's hair came down because I was really tired of seeing what I mean. Basically, her her bun. Sorry to nitpick costume and, and wardrobe and makeup, but her bun was the equivalent of one of those wedding cakes that has like all of the fondant on it, but you don't want to eat it because it's disgusting because fondant is basically sugar cardboard. So I was so happy when the hair finally came down and she looked like a goddess of fertility. Um, that being said, uh, yeah, I was okay. Here's my other nitpicky thing. 
wasn't really sure how much value there could possibly be in the children's death. I don't I really think know. This is a show like a flashy, real or what? Yeah, I guess it show was just strength, for sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, the I, I liked the Mister World sort of constant surveillance um, appearance on one of the children's face. Like uh, Mister World is Mister World is watching. Um. Yeah. Of the, of all the scenes, this is this is an interesting thing. Of all the scenes in this in this scene itself, uh, of of all of the moments, my favorite was actually when Shadow looks up at the balcony and sees Laura, which is strange because so far throughout this and the last couple of episodes, Shadow has been such a non character. Um, but when he looks up at the balcony and sees Laura and smiles, just like so pleased to see her exactly like a puppy would be actually. Um, and she looks, and she looks awful. She she doesn't even look like Laura. I'm surprised he recognized her, but the delight on his face at seeing this person, and it's and it, it made me remember that actually Shadow had probably intended to come back and continue to talk to Laura. Yeah, he wanted except to. That, yeah. that Wednesday had had driven him away, and he hadn't realized that Laura had been trying to chase him. Um, but it, it made me realize that, like, for all that the Shadow had wanted to an explanation and an apology or whatever it was he wanted from Laura, he really this was this was the important thing to him in his life, and he was so. He's so at sea. He's so confused all the time. He was so grateful that Laura had pursued him and had followed him and was here again. You're right. I, that is the most life. It was no, a, I agree. It was like a I, lovely moment. I thought the own. I, I liked the Ostara stuff. Like when she sucks the land dry. I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Her hair coming down. I agree. Her hair was like trying to fit nine pounds of hair in a two pound bag. <laughs> like it was just it was great. But it, that feels intentional, right? That, that like, yes. it was like yes. this beautiful was, goddess hair that ugh. had been sort of like crusted and, and yeah, ugh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, the Odin reveal just like, uh, I'm just like, yeah, we all know. Like, uh, Shep no is literally the last it. person to know. And like, we're really annoyed that he doesn't already know. So like, it's yeah. just, uh, that maybe, thing, you know. maybe if like there had been, you know, like a uh, giant hey, hey. bearded Ian oh. McShane with yeah. a, you know, an, an eye patch or a broad brimmed hat riding an eight legged steed through the storm clouds with Valkyries everywhere. Then I would have been like, yeah, get it, Odin. But it's just Ian McShane yelling that he's the person we knew he was for a long time. So I agree with you that the better part was was Shadow seeing Laura. Laura stealing uh, Wednesday's thunder was pretty great. And um, just saying, like, I'd like to have a word with my husband. So um, looking, as we said, disgusting. Uh, and then the last shot is, you know, Bilk was on the bus, headed to the house on the rock in Wisconsin. And that, I mean, like, uh, we've already gone out on great length, but I do want to do a quick spoiler section to talk about House on the Rock and sort of this finale and what might have been because mm-hmm. they meant to put House on the Rock in this episode um, initially. So any other thoughts uh, to wrap up before we, we spoil things? Um, no, I think that pretty much does it. I, I don't want to talk about the mists of Avalon, so uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> I think we'll leave it. <laughs> um, 
great. Well, uh, you know, if you're not following us into the spoiler section, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to talk to all of you guys about American Gods. We uh, are toying with the idea. I'm not making any promises right now, but we are toying with the <laughs> idea. Literally came up with it right before we started recording of perhaps doing a similar miniseries for the show Preacher uh, because Gail is quite the expert on those comics and I am a dilettante. It would be fun to talk to her. So, you know, if, if you guys would be interested in hearing us chat about Preacher uh, for, I think it's probably 10 episodes, uh, let us know on Twitter. I'm at Joe Wrote This. Gail, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Clockwork Rose. Or you can email us at stormerspoilers at gmail.com. Um, this, I mean, the reason I started this was so that I could talk to you, Gail, who's my best friend in the world, like have a regular <laughs> time to talk to her every week, talk about something we both very much love. Um, uh, but all of you listeners have just made it, uh, like an added extra pure delight, joy, all of your interesting emails and tweets and just like doing this with you guys has been really, really fun. I've been, I was really surprised at our download numbers. Like, so thank <laughs> you guys in the positive reviews on iTunes, like, I really did think that the, like no one would listen and it would just be the two of us talking to each other. So thank you guys so much for listening. I, I really do appreciate it. Without further ado, let's get into spoilers. Uh, so I wanted to wait uh, until here to like really give my full opinion on the Odin reveal because mm-hmm. obviously what they wanted to do is have Shadow come have his come to Jesus moment um, at the carousel, which is what happens in the books is he sees like yeah. these uh, humanoid gods that he's met and then he sees their sort of like larger than life um, uh, deity counterparts, right? Um, mm. He sees like a giant man with a hammer for turn. I want, I want to say, or we'll see a spider for a Nazi or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And yeah. Then- there's like a sort of refracted multifaceted, you know, a spider in a suit, a tiny spider, um, a man in chains, all these different iterations that What's comprise the, the Hindi deity that he meets. Like, mama, Oh mama God. Something or something like that. Anyway, like, yeah, all, all of this stuff Death, essentially. Um, is like, it's just a, it's a really stunning sequence in the book. And so I'm sure they, I know, I know that they were disappointed that they couldn't do it in the finale. I believe for budgetary reasons, um, Neil Gim was a little diplomatic about it, but I think it was sort of like budgetary <laughs> constraints. They originally had to do two, 10 episodes. They had to cut it back to eight, like all the sort of stuff that they've done, like here and there to patch it. Like, and what's really sad is like, I know that they want to do it in season two. Like, obviously that's where everyone's going. Even if they did it in the premiere of season two, which I don't know that they will, but even if they did that, that feels to me like there's no way they can possibly, because it's not going to be a revelation for Shadow. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it, you know, that, that particular carousel horse has, mm-hmm. has sailed. That's, it, it's it's ridden along. Yes, yeah, ridden along. Um, D- has Neil came in and I have not ever heard him talk about this particular scene in the book, but um, it is very reminiscent to me of a Ray Bradbury book, um, Something Wicked This Way Comes, in which carousel features very prominently as this sort of creepy supernatural device a carousel by the way is a very american thing um there i I cannot remember the name of the carousel producer but uh this this particular manufacturer of carousels you find them 
all over the Midwest in particular. Once in a while, someone who, who knows their carousel shit will like happen upon one of these in, in a small old town. And they're, they're just these amazing pieces of American history. They're very famous. They, they reflect a period of time. A carousel is like, and they, and they get restored and they're, they're worth like untold millions of dollars. But a carousel is a uniquely American piece of, um, I don't know, it's a piece of Americana, essentially. So I thought it was very interesting that he chose the biggest carousel in the world to be the staging area for this reveal of the American old world gods. Um, has he ever, had, in your experience, has he ever talked about that? Or have you ever heard him mention why it, why it was that the carousel? Because I thought it was just a brilliant choice of I staging just, area. I just Googled something wicked this way comes American gods house on the rock and got like no real hits on that. So I don't (laughs) think that he's ever talked about it, but I bet if you asked him about it, he would have a very thoughtful answer and would probably, uh, you know, certainly has heard of it beyond a doubt that he's read that Ray Bradbury. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, he's, I, it doesn't seem like he's talked about it at least enough to rank an SEO hit. So, um, (laughs) Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean that's fascinating, and and it is uh, like I don't I don't know the history of of carousels and sort of like when they started and and all of that. I know, I mean, but it does feel like a slice of Americana to me. My sister and I used to go to Spokane, Washington. There's a place called Riverfront Park in Spokane, Washington. We'd go there every single summer to visit my grandfather for like a week, and that to me is like the most iconic American experience of my childhood is this week every summer we would go up we would ride the carousel like all day long um and because you could get free rides if you got the brass ring and my sister was really good at getting the brass ring so we got a lot yeah. of free rides um and and they were like ice cream tr- like it just felt like it you know in a way that the san francisco barrier never was this felt mm-hmm. like i don't know real america or whatever and um and yeah i don't i I'm, 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 you know, pour one out for the House <laughs> on the Rock finale that never was. But even if it had come, like, we still, I think, they still just had a fundamental problem this whole season with, with Shadow. And I don't necessarily, I, you know, I think Ricky Whittle is not the best actor we've ever encountered in the world. And that's fine. Mm. I, you know, I think he's a fine actor. But, uh, you know, his... There, there maybe is like a Daniel Day Lewis who could have like made made something out of Shadow's inconsistency, inconsistencies and confusion that would have made sense to us, but uh, they did not get there with R- Ricky Whittle, and it's just it it was a problem all season, or at least I would say for like two thirds of the season. So I mean, I feel like we have a lot to say, but this has also like been the longest episode ever. Um, <laughs> we should probably stop yammering people's ears, but. Uh, you know, I, I, here's how I feel about the season, I guess I'll say, is that I feel mixed. Mm. I, I think the highs were very high and the lows I can deal with. And it all, like, I've seen nothing here that makes me feel trepidatious for season two. I'm very optimistic about season two. So, um, I'm hoping that they, you know, iron out some wrinkles, figure out what works. <clears throat> Laura, Matt Sweeney, Anansi. Wednesday and some things that don't and uh, 
you know, have a stronger, stronger year next year. What do you, what do you think, Gail? Yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping that we, we get, I mean, Shadow remains the main character. He will remain the main character. Um, he's extremely significant to the story. So I, I sincerely hope that he gets over his surprise and we start to see um, some something like we saw in like maybe the second or third episode where he, he began to be a little bit more relatable and then we just sort of lost it and he was constantly perplexed about everything. Um, the shadow who's having fun, who's like grifting with what yeah. they... Um, shadow who was learning and developing. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and only... Which, which makes the inevitable... The, the ultimate, we're in the spoiler section, so the, the ultimate resulting dupe better. It makes it more meaningful. This shadow, you could dupe him from here to Sunday. It wouldn't matter. Every, everything, it's, there's no effort involved in duping this shadow. He's so credulous. So, or, or not, as the case may be. It's just, he, why would you even bother to dupe him? Just do whatever you want to him. He, He's just following along sort of blindly. So, yeah, it's well, it's really delightful to see the Laura character being so explored, so well fleshed out, no pun intended. Um, her relationship, not relationship with Mad Sweeney, is really delightful to watch. That character is being given a lot more life than he was given in the book as well. I would personally like to see Bilquis be a little bit more explored as a character yeah. as opposed to a plot device, as I've said before, not in a you know really dreadful way. It's just that that's kind of what she is right now. Um, yeah. I mean, some of, some of these, and then again, uh, of course more Orlando Jones always, but Ian McShane's character, you know, for, for Mr. Wednesday, for Odin to be a little more, a little more forthright as he would be in the book after the the big reveal at House on the Rock, it is a it is a bummer that that's not going to be the big reveal moment. That being said, the fact that we're ending the first season on that note gives me hope that they have decided to do something quite creative and interesting with that incredible staging area. Uh, it is such a weird place, and the way that Gaiman talks about it in the book as as sort of an epicenter, a, a, a you know, a, a gravitational point for belief, or you know, str- the strange strain of American worship. It's a place of power, and for that to be explored in that first episode, I, that gives me hope that you know, while it, while it might not be the big reveal it might be a really interesting part of the story that they've decided to invent basically. Yeah. I love it. Um, I agree with you. Like, it's not like you can just table shadow and his own story. So <laughs> figure out, figure out a way for shadow to work, please. And, um, and we'll all have a great time in season two. And <laughs> maybe this podcast will even be back. Who knows? Who knows what Gail and I will be doing by then. Um, is there, okay. Last, last question. Very last question. What is the, is there a God that we haven't seen yet that you're most excited to see in season two? That I'm most excited to see in season two. 
Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, and we're in spoilers, so we can we can talk about it because I I said it, I said it, not said it way back in like episode one. Is that a god? Is, is he that a god? That's how he's portrayed in okay. the book. He's he's small and weak because he is so largely forgotten. But he more aggressively than any other god, he has carved and I use the word intentionally carved out a little niche for himself in this this little piece of America. And I find that storyline, this is the Henselman storyline, I find it very moving because there is an element of America, of American culture that worships the small town. And that sort of small town, you know, like America's sweetheart, the small town, the baseball games, the 4th of July, That that's, you know, the sort of hamburgers and fries that the rest of the world sees. A lot of times, I think when they look at America and the, the less you know, perhaps, perhaps more quietly dangerous parts of American culture, because you can get very, you can sacrifice a lot. And and I think this is part of the message of this character. You can sacrifice quite a lot of the, the, the small, the small people, or, you know, you can break a lot of eggs in order to preserve the small town American omelet. And that's been explored in a lot of American short stories, this obsession with the perfect small town where everything functions beautifully and everyone's nice to each other and you don't have to lock your doors. And that's what this particular old God has created in this little town. And I'm really interested to see with all of the departures from the original story that the show has made so far and, and the difficulty they've found, they've had finding their footing. That was to me a really strong sort of isolated in its own way part of the original story and i found it like i said in the first episode the most powerful the most meaningful and and the most terrible and maybe that's my suburban upbringing talking that it was you know it, it was so reminiscent of these sort of casual assumptions that are made by you know, the, the cult of the, the small town about, you know, like what, what is normal and, and what's good and what is to, you know, what you're entitled to, but what is, what's the sacrifice that you're making to preserve that? What's being overlooked? What's being assumed? And I, I, yeah, that's what I am most looking forward to. It always has been. (laughs) Yeah. It reminds me of all these, like, um, all the that story, the lottery, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, the lottery definitely. But also the, all these like um, midwestern towns that mm-hmm. that were like these nexuses for um, Muslim refugees. I was just listening to like a series of stories about this on NPR and like how they like they, they are, are so xenophobic, not because they're bad people. Mm-hmm. But because they just want their way of life preserved, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's not, I mean, some of them are maybe not good people, but, like, you know, it's not <laughs> that they don't want a mosque because they hate mosques. It's just that they, like, want their, what they consider to be the original culture, which is mm-hmm. not, by the way, but, like, you know, they're, like, Lutheran, whatever, what have you. And so, what they're sacrificing there is they, like, they want that without having to lose their like Minnesota nice or whatever it is, Mm. but they have, they do, they have to sacrifice some of these like Christian ideals that they like are desperate to preserve. They have to sacrifice that in order to preserve it 
quote unquote, preserve it, because to turn your back on these refugees who need you is not a Christian thing to do. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like this is exactly this like very interesting trade off that they feel like or, you know, they're not even consciously making in mm-hmm. order to try to sort of preserve um, their nice way of life. Yeah. And, and in that respect, the religion is not about the tenets of Christianity. The religion is the town. Right. It is it is a worship of of a model of a town. And that is precisely what the original deity that Gaiman describes does is it protects the tribe. It protects the village and it preserves the order of the village. And, and I think it was, it was terrifying, but also a very firm for me as an American, sort of a, a moving, saddening portrait of something that's not innately bad. The town is good. It's it's full of good people. The people in this town are portrayed as being genuinely good people. But there is a cost. None of the other surrounding towns have survived. And it's that's sort of the natural order of industry in the US. That's how it's been that's how it's portrayed in the book. They couldn't sustain themselves for one reason or another, but sort of like mysteriously, magically, this town just seems to just keep on trucking and everything's perfect and everyone's nice. And yeah, in the face of everything else around it, sort of decaying and dying, doesn't it seem like there's something wrong with that? <laughs> it's just it's a it's a really interesting uh portrait. Um I think that my answer (laughs) is either going to be the goddess who I couldn't remember earlier, which is uh, Kali or Mama G, as she is sort of depicted. Um, Either that or, or this is very on brand for me, uh, Bast, the uh, goddess who I don't know if like, I don't know if we are going to see her because she was going to disrupt... um, Ibis and Jackal's domestic bliss. I think I said it right that time. Did, um, they, have, did, did they have a so? And it it's funny because somebody pointed out that it should be Ibis. Um, and, and Ibis is a bird. It's literally the bird that Thoth is. And so I I should have known that, but um, I just assumed at some point that this show had called him Ibis. I sort of like Ibis and Jackal as like oblique references to Ibises and Jackals. But anyway. I just always have pronounced that word incorrectly. Anyway, thank you for the listener who literally sent us a photo of like an eye to remind us how to pronounce it. Uh, if you're listening in the spoiler section, thank you very much. And um, yeah, you know, as you say, it's nice to see Laura fleshed out. Uh, Bilquis is not like just because she has more screen time and has that great like coming to America thing doesn't mean that she really feels like a person yeah mm. um i mean maybe it's weird to uh, want a deity to feel like a person uh, we got a little easter we got a little, but like i still think the show could do better by its female characters so mm-hmm. you know someone like mama g or or bast or maybe like uh the return of chorus leechman would uh, <laughs> make me make audrey from wherever she from wherever audrey disappeared to probably that netflix tv series about female wrestling that she's in that's probably where she went but um i'd love for audrey to come back so uh yeah all of that okay well until potentially 2018 fingers crossed good night good luck only the gods are real